Well, take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. This morning, we conclude our series on the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And we conclude this morning the way that we began. We began setting the stage for the seven letters in Revelation by looking at Revelation chapter 1 and the fresh vision of Jesus Christ. We end this morning, after having looked at all of chapters 2 and chapter 3, by looking at chapters 4 and 5 and finishing with another fresh vision of Jesus Christ. It seems as if the Lord knew what he was doing as he put this book together, helping us to understand that what the church needed was not simply a clear recognition of who they were and their deficiencies, but they needed to see Jesus in a fresh way. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. He continues, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. This is exactly why the book of Revelation is laid out the way that it is. Do we need, as the church, those pointed letters from chapters 2 and 3 to help us to see our deficiencies, to help us to see exactly the kind of church that God wants us to be, any things he wants us to accomplish? Absolutely yes. But all of those things, without a clear and fresh vision of God himself, will amount to nothing. If you have a clear picture of exactly what the church is to be, but a hazy picture of who God is, then you will not accomplish anything as an individual or as a church for Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer is exactly right. It is impossible for us to rise above our view of God. Who we are and who we're becoming and what we're accomplishing is all determined by what we think of God. And so it is that right after the letters to the churches, he gives us two more chapters of a fresh vision of Christ. I find it so interesting that when you come to the last of the letters as we did last week in Revelation 3 at the church of Laodicea, that it ends with an open door. It ends with the Lord knocking and 
saying, I want to come in. If, if you'll open the door, I'll come in, and I want to enjoy fellowship with you, and I want to give you my counsel, and I want to give you my friendship, and I want intimacy with you. Chapter 3 ends with the Lord knocking on the door with an invitation for you to come and receive from him. You go immediately then to chapter 4, and chapter 4 begins with a door. John tells us that he hears a voice. It's the same voice that he heard in chapter 1. But this time, this voice is inviting him through an open door to come in and to gaze into heaven. And John is going to be given the task, which he's given all the way throughout the book of Revelation. I would say the impossible task of trying to communicate something which is almost impossible to communicate. John has a difficult time finding words to describe the vision he's seen as he gazes into heaven, as he peeks through the door and sees the incomparable glory of God. You can't imagine what it would have been like to go back and in the Stone Age to describe to someone in the Stone Age what an airplane was like, or what an automobile was like, or what electricity was like. There's not even a category to understand those things, so it is for us almost impossible to truly understand what John sees here. But yet John, by God's grace, communicates to us an incredible picture. And follow with me this morning as we walk through Revelation 4 and 5. It says that there's a door standing open in heaven in verse 1, and he heard that voice again saying, come up here, and, and I will show you what must take place after this. As John goes into that door, he says he was in the Spirit, and the first thing he saw is he saw a throne standing in heaven. And on that throne, there is, as it says, one seated on the throne. The centerpiece of John's vision, the centerpiece of heaven, the centerpiece of all of the universe is a throne. And there is only one seated on the throne. It is a reminder, listen, that the center of everything is an occupied throne. The center of everything the center of everything that is happening in the universe, the center of everything that is going on, that has always been going in and always will be going on, is an occupied throne. There is one throne and one sitting on it. It is God the Father. It says that there was one seated on the throne, and John then begins to describe what he saw. He says, the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. He doesn't know how to describe it except to describe it in the terms of, of precious stones and in the same way that precious stones reflect the light and as they reflect the light it shines on again that there is this purity and beauty and light that's really only symbolized when it appears upon those type of precious stones. He says that's what was radiating from God himself. He's trying to describe to us the radiance of God's glory, the incomparable glory of God himself, that God, in the same way that Jesus was in chapter 1, is radiating with glory. He says, and there was also around the throne a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. So not only was the light reflecting off of God on the throne, but all around the throne was this rainbow like emerald shining and glistening. Then it says around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the throne were 24 elders. This is a representation of all believers of all time. Twelve of those thrones represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The other 12 represent the 12 apostles. And together you have a representation of both Old Testament and New Testament believers. 
It is a representation of us, of everyone who is trusted in Jesus Christ, everyone who is a child of God, us represented there on thrones surrounding the throne. And we're clothed in white garments because we have been clothed, because the purity of Jesus Christ himself has been placed upon us. And on their heads are golden crowns. It says, from the throne was coming flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and torches of fire. You start to feel the weight of what is happening here. We talked about this when we looked at Revelation 1. There is a heaviness about this moment. It's not simply the glory of the light and the shining of the light and the brilliance of the light. That the rumbling of the thunder and lightning brings a heaviness in your heart that you literally are feeling the weight of the glory of God. It says around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. You say, Pastor, what does all that mean? To which I say, I have no idea. What I do know for sure it is, is this, is in the same way you have a representation of all of these believers gathering together around the throne, so it is you have here all of creation gathering together around the throne. It is a reference to everything in heaven and everything on earth all gathering together around the throne. And look at what it says. It says, day and night, verse 8, they never cease to say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. There's this constant, repeated theme of the holiness of God over and over, day and night, from beginning to end. All of these angels and all of these created beings are declaring the holiness of God. You say, well, why, why do they say holy three times? Because once is not enough. Because they're so overwhelmed by the purity and the magnificence of God. They're so overwhelmed by the glory of the light that is shining around him that they cannot help but to repeat over and over this refrain, he is holy, he is holy, he is holy. There is no one like our God. He is the one that was, he is the one that is, and he is to come. He always has been, and he always will be, and everything exists because of him. This is the sound that is coming from the throne. But it says this, is that when the living creatures are, are doing that, and they're giving honor and glory and thanks to the one seated on the throne who lives forever, the 24 elders, the representation of all believers, that while all of the created beings are seeing to the holiness of God, the, the elders who represent us are bowing down before the throne, and they're taking off their crowns of gold, it says, and casting them before their throne, because when they're looking at the magnificence of God himself, they feel unworthy to wear a crown. They believe that there's only one that deserves a crown. There's only one that deserves gold. There's only one that deserves any attention. There's only one that deserves any honor. They cast their crowns before him, and all the believers declare, worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. No, no, you are the one that is worthy. Only you are worthy. And you are worthy of all glory and all power and all honor. You say, why? For you created all things. We exist because of you. And by your will, they exist and were created. I have the opportunity on Tuesday morning to speak to a large group of 
businessmen and women, most of them unbelievers. And I'm going to ask this question, not only why should we be thankful, but specifically, why should we be thankful to God alone? And I don't know of a better answer than what it says right here at the end of Revelation 4, and it is this, because you exist and continue to exist and will exist only because of God alone. There is nothing outside of God himself. Every single thing that exists, exists by his will and continue to exist for his glory. That's why we give thanks to God. But everything that is happening in Revelation 4, that is God the Father on the throne and all of the light and all of the transcendent beauty and glory and all of the songs that are being sung are all told to us in order to set the stage for chapter 5. You can't preach chapter 4 without chapter 5. You can't understand chapter 4 or chapter 5 without each other. Because as John gazes into heaven and he looks on the throne, it says at the beginning of chapter 5 that in the hand of the one on the throne was a scroll. And written on the scroll was front and back and all over written everything that was coming to be. John could see the writing on the scroll. It was clear that there was no empty spaces. That as the scroll was rolled up, everywhere on that scroll was writing. That scroll is the eternal plan of God. That, that scroll is the unveiling of the future events that everything in the future of the world, and listen, and our future, is wrapped up in that scroll. John sees the scroll, is longing for the scroll to be opened. He's longing to see what's happening next. And it says that a mighty angel began to proclaim with a loud voice in chapter 5, verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Seven seals on the scroll. One would be sufficient. Seven seals to show that this is not something easy to open. That there is only one who is going to be worthy to open the scroll. And so an angel begins to shout, who's worthy? Who can open the scroll? Who is it that can show us the unveiling of the future events? Who can show us what is happening next? And for the very first time, there's silence. It says that in no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. The angel declares who is worthy, who can open, and all of heaven is silent. No one stands and speaks. John's response in verse 4 is he begins to weep loudly. You say, why would John weep? At the idea that no one could open the scroll because John is on the island of Patmos in prison because of his faith. And the reason he is there is because he believed the promises of God. He believed that if he would suffer here, there was greater glory later. He believed that there was greater joy later. He believed that it was worth suffering here because of the promises of God later. And if no one can open the scroll, all of his suffering and all of his pain and all of his sacrifice is in vain because there is nothing later. All of his future is in that scroll. And if the scroll remains unopened, and if the scroll remains unfulfilled, all of our suffering and all of our sacrifice is in vain. As John begins to weep loudly, one of the elders turned to him and said, Stop weeping. John, weep 
weep no more. For behold, for look, John, I want, you to, I want you to see something. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he is conquered and he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The picture all of a sudden of a lion which puts in our minds the symbol of power and fierceness and fearlessness and majesty. There is no animal that brings such gravitas, no animal that brings such majesty and power and authority than that of a lion. A lion is my favorite animal. Proverbs 28.1 is my favorite verse. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And I'll never forget going to the zoo with one of my daughters on a school field trip and going to watch the lion and standing there probably 15 feet from where the lion was and all of a sudden out of the blue hearing something I had never heard before, hearing a lion roar. The heaviness of that is indescribable. Literally, your chest begins to rattle. There is nothing like that in all of the world because the lion gives us this picture of this fierce, fearless, powerful, majestic animal. But it's not just a lion. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. It is the promised conquering Messiah. For generation after generation, the father had said, one day a conquering Messiah is going to come. He will come, and he will rule, and he will reign, and he will demonstrate his power and his majesty and his fierceness by conquering your enemies. And so John begins to look for the lion. This is the one who can open the seal. And John looks, and he looks, and he's looking for the lion, and he doesn't see a lion tells us as John is gazing through heaven looking for a lion, what he does see is he sees standing next to the throne, verse 6, a lamb. It wasn't just a lamb, it was a lamb standing as though it had been slain. There was a lamb whose wool was covered in blood. A white lamb stained with blood, its own blood, it looked as if it had been slaughtered. You can't even imagine that picture, covered in its own blood. And while John is looking for the promised lion, and he doesn't seem to find one, what he sees instead is a slaughtered lamb, and in that moment he realizes by what is about to happen that the fierce, majestic, powerful lion actually is the slaughtered lamb. That the slaughtered lamb is the lion of David. It is the one who is the, from the tribe of Judah. That the slaughtered lamb is the one who has come and conquered. And the reason that he is looking like a slaughtered lamb is because he came to conquer sin and death and hell. And he did so the only way that it was possible. And that is by the giving of his own life. That the promised lion did come, but he didn't come the way we expected it. He came like a spotless lamb, and he was led to the slaughter, and he was slaughtered for our transgressions, that the weight of all of our sin and all of our iniquity was laid upon Christ, and he was slaughtered to conquer our greatest enemies, death and sin and hell. And there is standing by the throne a slaughtered lamb says in verse 7 that he went, this lamb, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And we had taken the scroll. The living creatures and the elders all fell down before the lamb. And each of them holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense. Picture them all approaching the lamb, all believers, all creation coming to the lamb. They're holding a harp 
because they're about to sing. And they're holding a golden bowl, bowl full of incense, which says here is the prayers of the saints. So what, is, what does that mean? Well, the truth is, at that moment, coming to the Lamb is a representation of every prayer that we've ever prayed. Every late night agonizing of the soul when you said, why so downcast, oh my soul, when you said, my God, my God, where are you and why have you forsaken me, when you've wondered where he is, when you had nothing left to do but to cry out to God, when you had no answers, when you thought there was no hope left, every single tear that was shed and every cry that you ever cried and every prayer that you ever called out to God that no one knows but him, all of them are presented right here to the Lamb and the reason is this, is because when the Lamb opens the scroll, every question you've ever had and every prayer that you've ever prayed is all about to be fulfilled in Christ. Every one of them, every one of those prayers that you cried out to God that you wondered if he ever heard, I assure you he heard them and they will be fulfilled when the lamb opens the scroll. It says that they begin to sing a new song. You say, why a new song? Because there's never been a moment like this. All throughout Scripture, new moments need new songs. And when the Lamb comes and takes the scroll, they begin to sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every nation and tribe and language and people and nation. And now you have made them into a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You are worthy to open the scroll because of the sacrifice of your life and the purchasing of people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And all of those people from nation, tongues, and tribes redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, secure for all of eternity because of his sacrifice, gather around the throne with all of the living creatures, the elders, the many angels, myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. All of the glory, all of the praise going to the lamb who was slain. That the only reason we have any hope of dwelling with Christ in all of eternity, the only reason that we have any hope of knowing that wrapped up in that sealed scroll is a glorious future for us. And any reason that we have hope that all of our sacrifice is not in vain and none of our prayers are in vain is because the sacrifice of the Lamb on our behalf is that He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. By faith, as we turn to Jesus Christ acknowledging our sins and we receive his death as the payment for our sins, we are clothed in a garment of white because the very righteousness of Jesus is on us. And we are not the ones stained with blood. His white coat is stained with blood. Ours is white and pure. It says that every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea are all saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forevermore. Here's my question for us. This was not simply given to us to help us to think about the future. It was given to the church to have an effect upon them now. You see, Jesus knew that 
that they needed those letters from the churches to the churches of Revelation. We needed those letters. Every one of them exposed something in us. Every one of them, whether it be the lukewarm church or whatever it be, we needed to hear that. We needed that instruction. We needed that confrontation. But more than we need any of that is a high view of God himself. So he ends by giving them this picture because it is to change who they are now. It is to change who are they becoming. If we cannot rise above our view of God and we want to be conformed into the image of Christ, holy and pure before God, useful to the master, we must ourselves have a high view of God. It is meant to change us right now. I think when we look at Revelation 4 and 5 and we end this instruction to the churches here, I think it forces us to ask a few questions first one is this, who is on the throne of your life? There is one throne and one seated on it and all glory and all praise goes to him. The center of everything is an occupied throne. Listen to me, is he the center of your life? Can you imagine anything more wasteful than a life without God at the center? If God is not at the center of your life and everything else revolving around him, then you are not a part of where all of history is going. That you were created and you exist to have in your heart a throne and one person sitting on it, and it is God himself. Is he your Lord? We must also ask the question, that is the worship of Jesus your consuming passion? We say with Psalm 115, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And all of us seem to be fighting for supremacy. We're all fighting for glory. We all want attention. We all need affirmation. When the reality is when we get a right picture of God, we simply say, I don't want any of that anymore. I want all of my life to live not for my glory, but for yours. You see, that's what happens when we get a high picture of God. He becomes Lord of our life because we realize without him at the center, nothing else matters. And we begin to realize that we exist for the praise and the glory of God. That my life might lead other people to praise him. That emanating from my life is a reflection of the glory of God himself. We were created to worship right now. Is he the center of your life? Are you living to worship him? And the last question is, confronts us with is this, are we living for the spread of his worship? For the spread of his worship. Psalm 67, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the peoples. Let the peoples praise you, let all the peoples praise you. The reason we do missions and evangelism is to spread the worship of Christ. That's it. To spread the worship of Christ, to take people who do not acknowledge Christ, to help them to understand that their lives might be given in worship to him. That this is where all of creation is going. With God at the center. With worship as the core of everything we do. With the spread of his name to the ends of the earth. That all of the earth might be filled with the glory of the knowledge of God himself. And if that is not what we're about. We're missing the very essence of which we were created. So this morning, we're going to respond by taking communion. And the reason we are is because it is a representation of 
what Christ has done for us. We hold up this cup in just a moment, which represents the blood staying the white wool of the Lamb of God. And we hold up this bread, which represents the breaking of the body of Christ, both of those things done so that we might be healed. But it is not simply these things which are symbolic. Listen, it is the partaking of these which is symbolic. Because when you partake of these, what you are declaring is this, is that I have received by faith what Christ has done for me. That it has been applied to me that I have come to faith in Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and Savior. Paul is very clear that there are some who have taken the Lord's Supper in a wrong manner. What does that mean? It means that whether they've had unconfessed sin in their life or whether they don't know Jesus, they're proclaiming something that's not true. They're taking this when in reality it has not been applied to their life. So this morning, if you are a child of God, we're going to pass these elements out and you're going to take them. And in just a minute, I'm going to lead us through that moment. And we're going to rejoice in what Christ has done for us and how it's been applied to us. And if you are not, I am begging you in these moments of silence we're going to give you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Simply pray a prayer to the Lord. Lord, I acknowledge my sin. I've tried to be the Lord of my own life. It hasn't worked. I receive you as my Lord and Savior by faith. I trust your death as the payment for my sins. I give my life to you. Ask him to save you and he May somehow, by God's grace, every one of us leave this morning with Christ at the center so our lives might live for his glory.